On today's episode, a strength Q&A session with Angelo Gingerelli. Welcome to the Run Smarter podcast, the podcast helping you overcome your current and future running injuries by educating and transforming you into a healthier, stronger, smarter runner. If you're like me, running is life, but more often than not, injuries disrupt this lifestyle. And once you are injured, you're looking for answers and met with bad advice and conflicting messages circulating the running community. The world shouldn't be like this. You deserve to run injury-free and have access to the right information. That's why I've made it my mission to bring clarity and control to every runner. My name is Brody Sharp. I am a physiotherapist, a former chronic injury sufferer, and your podcast host. I am excited that you have found this podcast and by default become the Run Smarter Scholar. So let's work together to overcome your injury, restore your confidence, and start spreading the right information back into your running community. So let's begin today's lesson. had the pleasure of interviewing Angelo today. Uh, he is a strength and conditioning coach and co-author of the new book, Finish Strong. And he reached out, emailed me and said, Brody, um, check out this book. Uh, send me the electronic version. So I'd love to um, know what you think and potentially have a chat on the podcast about it. And that's exactly what we decided to do. The uh, episodes that I've done on strength and conditioning in the past has been quite extensive. And so I had the idea of asking the patrons saying we have Angelo Gingerelli on the podcast uh, next week. What questions do you have? And we've got 11 questions here from patrons. Um, so thanks to all of you who, who have um, first of all become patrons, but then submitted some questions and yeah, we just go through these questions. We talk about the book. Um, it's all about strength and conditioning, what sessions should look like, um, how to progress, what exercises. We talk about core exercises, anti-rotation exercises, what to do off-season, in-season when it comes to strength training. And yeah, Angelo was a wealth of knowledge. I'm glad I had him on. Um, check out the book. Um, I'm going to delve into it after this. I, you know, preparing for this podcast got sent the book. It's quite extensive. There's a lot of stuff in there. Um, so um, had a, a brief look going through all the like kind of key chapters about what we'll talk about today. And then I'll dive into it in a bit more detail after this. So looking forward to that. And yeah, we've got, I have um, Angelo's Instagram, his email and the book in the show notes, if you want to check that out. Um, in relation to the book, in relation to the Run Smarter book, I pretty much have if everything goes well, maybe the next three or four weeks, um, I have the proofreaders and the editor going through the book in its final stages. After that, it's that might take another week or two. After that, sending it to my interior designer who's going to design the inside of the book. And then after that, I can't really think of a lot of stages that need to be done. So um, after that, my <laughs> I've already... Re- recognized in the last couple of weeks my passion for um, launching the YouTube channel the run I think I'll call it run smarter with Brody sharp I think that's um, where I'm sort of sort of honing in on but as I'm spending less hours with the book because it's now in the hands of other people I can sense that my passion to start up this YouTube channel is um, growing so that will be a new development as well I'll keep you posted on that and um, yeah, feel free to join and start listening and watching now as it will now be on YouTube. Okay, enough of me blabbering on. Let's get into our conversation with Angelo. Angelo, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining me. Hey, man, thank you so much. Really looking forward to this. Me too. Um, how about we start with just you introducing yourself, where you're from, and like what what career you're kind of involved in. Okay, great. My name is Angelo Gingerelli. I've been a strength and conditioning coach in the United States, in New Jersey, right on the East Coast, so pretty much as far away from you as I could possibly be, I'd be <laughs> in the States. But uh, I've been doing this profession, I certified by NSA in 2000, so I've been a strength and conditioning coach for 22 years now. I've been at Seton Hall University, 
uh, which again, right outside of New York City since 2005. So I just finished off my 17th uh, academic year there, which in America for Australian District was just a very long time to be in one position. But yeah, I really liked it, man. I fell into a good place. I'm from here. I grew up a fan of the, the school I get to work at now, which is really cool. And then uh, my friends and family are around. So, and we have a great racing community in New Jersey as well. So like the New Jersey Marathon for the last 30 or so years has been right, goes right in front of my house by the beach. A uh, bunch of great races happen at the beach every year. So I'm super lucky to be able to live here and be a part of that and be involved in pretty high-end, highly competitive college athletics at Seton Hall during you know, my day job, if you will. And then my job consists of strength and conditioning. So I'm writing programs. I'm working with full teams and individuals, depending on demands of their sport. And what I always say is I was, I was a pretty traditional strength coach for the first 10 years of my career. My background was in competitive powerlifting, competitive Olympic weightlifting, and everything I, w- I was doing was around the power sports. But at my day job, I was working with other athletes, right? I was working with swimmers and our runners and our track and field team. And I don't think I really got good at working with those kind of athletes until 2011 when I ran a marathon for the first time. So 2010, I was, I was a contributor to a fitness magazine over here in the States, and they decided to do a whole staff just for fun was going to run a 10-mile race together in Philadelphia, one of the bigger cities on the East Coast. And I did that with the staff, really had a great time. I'm going to try and half marathon. I did that uh, at the end of 2010, and then I decided it was time to step up and try the real thing. So I ran one in 2011, and just kind of caught the bug. And I've run a marathon for the last 12 years now. Obviously, the last couple of years have been kind of slow race-wise because of COVID. But it kind of just changed my mind, changed my training. And then over the, over the last couple of years, say since about 2018, myself and Dr. Richard Borges, who I co-wrote the book we're going to talk about later, we were running together and lifting together. And we're in our late 30s, and we're kind of still getting faster, not getting injured, going to qualifying for bigger and better races. And we're like, well, what are we doing that's kind of different than everybody else? And we found the one thing just anecdotally was in the United States, not many distance people are doing a lot of strength training, right? So we kind of figured out that he's an athletic trainer by trade. And he kind of realized on the rehab side of things, what he was doing day to keep himself healthy as he was getting older. And me going from that, that strength background, these are the workouts I was doing. Well, maybe we got to get this out to more people. And that kind of led to the book, uh, Finish Strong. Kind of the idea that we think, kind of like yourself, more people should be doing endurance and resistance training and not just be in two completely different camps. Either you lift weights or you run and you just don't ever do the other thing. Right. And so it was purely just based off like your career and the, the gap or the, I guess, yeah, the gap in knowledge that you saw within the endurance population and said, yep, we need to get this book out just to, to deliver that information. Right. It got to the point where I was kind of answering so many questions day to day with the people I was running with and our student athletes and just people in my life. I well, there's probably more people need to know this. If I'm getting this many questions, I'm just one person. Uh, there's probably a market for this information out there. And I think, you know, there's a million reasons why people get injured, right? There's genetic, there's a there's hundred things. But I think we can both agree that lack of strength and lack of progressive resistance training is definitely a piece of that puzzle when somebody gets injured, right? So we can kind of, my, my idea was kind of get the information out there, you know, do, do the best I can to educate people with what I know about the human body and what I know about endurance sports. And then hopefully that one piece of the puzzle gets better for them. And then they can go and address the next piece of that puzzle, whether it's nutrition, hydration, whatever the next thing might be. But I think I want to help people kind of plug in that, that resistance training component and get stronger and use a cliche, finish strong at these races we're all doing. Nice. And so the, the information provided within this book is like your anecdotal expertise, like you say, the 22 years of strength and conditioning as well as the, with your, your co-author. Well, it's a little, it's a mixture of both, right? There is definitely some anecdotal stuff that I do, like do these kind of exercises leading up to a race, right? Because it's written by two human beings who have human type experiences, but it's also research based, right? So Dr. Borgers is an athletic trainer by trade. I'm a strength and distance coach by trade. We both have 20 plus years experience. So we kind of took the literature that's out there. We use the NSCA guidelines for stuff like progressive overload, general adaptation syndrome, rest, recovery. So we kind of we kind of based it in the principles that strength coaches have been using for years that unfortunately not that many endurance sport coaches and endurance sport athletes have been using. Now, theoretically, if any, whether you're a marathon or a power lifter, if you walk in the weight room, your body's fundamentally the same, right? But should we train differently based on what that body's been through before your first training session and what limitations and, and imbalances and inflexibilities you might have? Yes, probably. So we kind of separated into uh, runners, cyclists, swimmers, and triathletes. 
and then kind of kind of put the workouts together based on that, right? My personal opinion, and I think that most people will agree with this at this point, and when you walk in a weight room, about 80% of what you're going to do, I think, is good for everybody, right? I think, barring catastrophic injury or, you know, some limitations, I think a thing like a squat in some capacity is valuable for everyone, right? I think a thing like a lunge or a hip hinge, almost everybody can benefit from doing those basic foundation exercises, right? But then that last 20% you probably specialize and decide, I'm a, a runner, I should maybe spend more time on this group of exercises and a group of exercise that isn't as advantageous to running from point A to B as fast as possible, right? And that's kind of what we did. We came from, gave you some foundation exercises that we think everybody could benefit from, and then we specialized that last 20, 25% based on the discipline you choose to pursue. Mm. Well done. Congratulations with, with launching the book as well. Um, I'm just trying to write one at the moment. No, it's a massive undertaking, so congratulations on getting it out there. Oh, nice, man. So it's really, it's a fun experience. Um, I, every time I like to thank the whole fitness podcast community all around the world because you and a bunch of people have been so open to having uh, me or Dr. Borgers on and talk about it and get our message out there, which has been great. And you have a tremendous show. I've been listening to it for a while. I really, I really enjoy it. It's got a lot of great information and uh, stuff I'm, I'm using already that I learned on here. Brilliant. Thank you. Well, um, I know because I've done so many strength episodes in the early days and sort of releasing my thoughts and what the the research has shown what runners should do with strength training i thought what we would do is propose some questions to the patrons and get them to ask some questions to you and just go through a list of those i know i sent them to you yesterday and um if you're happy let's dive in now yeah man let's go let's hear from the listeners let's go we're, we're going to start off with karen so karen asks how long should a strength training session be between strength, running, cross-training, and rest days, it's hard to fit it all in, um, especially if you've, you say you're, you're tailoring to triathletes as well. It's always tough to try and fit that in. But I thought uh, I might extend Karen's question a little bit and just say, what should a generic strength training session look like for runners, um, as well as like how long should the session be? What Generally speaking, frequency and those sorts of things, what should it look like? Great, great question, Karen. Definitely appreciate that. And I'm going to assume what you guys are doing over Australia is pretty similar to what we're doing in America in this respect. Endurance sport athletes in general have too much fatigue from training and doing all these miles and yards in the water, right? And too little time because if you're doing any kind of real high-level endurance training, you're on the road, you're on the bike, you're in the pool for several hours every day. Am I right when I say that? Yeah. So I, so I think in general, if, the per, if everybody was a perfect world professional endurance athlete and no other you know, demands on their time whatsoever, I would say three to four hours a week in the gym would be optimal, right? I think in reality, what we're looking at is probably two 40 to 45 minute sessions a week, kind of based around your endurance training. If you get in a third session per week to do some foam rolling, some stretching, some mobility, some core work, that'd be great. I think in the, in the real world, if you can commit, say, four, say if your long runs are on Sunday, theoretically, maybe 40 minutes in a gym on Monday and Thursday, and maybe Friday, Saturday, you take that home stuff, that mobility work, that body weight stuff, that flexibility stuff. That's a good place to start, right? On the one thing about resistance training, it's kind of similar to endurance training. As you get better at it, you have to do more of it to continue to get better, right? So you, but obviously, we only have 24 hours in a day. So one thing that's kind of cool about the gym versus just running more miles is, you can manipulate your intensity, your frequency, what exercise you're doing to make it way more intense and get more out of it. Because everybody knows you're going to the gym for three hours and accomplish nothing. You're going to the gym for 30 minutes and have a great session that makes you a better athlete, right? So our kind of goal is trim the fat. You know, don't be on the phone the whole time. Don't do a thousand ab exercises before you get going. Pick, you know, six to nine exercises that you, we kind of determine to be the most valuable, best bang per minute in the gym and get really good at those, right? So we kind of put our workouts together like this. We kind of think we're going to start with some individualized mobility work. Um, and we, in the book, what we did, we put together some common problems each discipline sees. And then we gave you a list of exercises you could pick from based on that, right? So, for example, personally, I have pretty tight IT bands. So my first, you know, I might go in the gym, do a light warm-up, or if it's after a run, obviously I've already done the warm-up for that, and try to work on foam rolling, using the stick to IT bands to feel a little bit better, right? Uh, maybe after that, I, I might own the best posture. I'll do a couple exercises, try to pull my shoulder girdle back a little bit, open my chest up a little bit more, have some better posture. And then we're going to lift. We'll, we'll superset a core exercise of some kind. 
with a upper body pull and a lower body push. So it might be, for example, kind of like a regular old school sit-up, superset it with a uh, bench press for the upper body push and a RDL or a leg curl for the lower body pull, right? We'll go through that three or four times. Uh, then we'll go to our next core circuit, which will look like some kind of anti-rotation movement, right? So it might be a payoff press with a band. It might be something with a med ball kind of fighting rotation. And we'll superset that with a lower body push and upper body pull. So it might be some squats and some pull-ups, right? And then we'll kind of finish with a quick circuit of four of our, of our uh, sport-specific exercises, two sets of 10 each. So theoretically, you spend you know about five minutes on your mobility work, 10 minutes on each of those uh, mini circuits that puts you at right about 40 minutes and get, get into 40 minutes sessions a week, and you should be good to go. Now, the one thing I will say, depending on the time of the year, you might want to spend more or less time in the gym, right? So one way we periodize it is we kind of looked at the off-season, which is when we're still running. We're runners. We're going to run no matter what, right? But if you got a time of the year where maybe you don't have a big race coming up, you're not just crushing the mileage, maybe you could get three or four sessions a week in instead of two, or maybe you could get some extra time in every session and do some extra exercises and do some harder exercise, right? Maybe we're squatting with a bar across our back, doing some heavy Romanian deadlifts for our hamstrings. And then if we're, you know, month out from one of our big races, we'll look at that as our in-season and maybe cut it down to the two core 40-minute sessions and maybe instead of a big heavy barbell back squat, we're doing a kettlebell squat or a goblet squat. Instead of RDLs, we're doing some kettlebell swings, which are great exercises. You know, in my opinion, unless you're injuring yourself, there's a place for almost any exercise in a program, right? But let's pick the ones that are the most advantageous to what we're doing that time of the year and what else is going on in our life, right? So I always say, you know, strength coaches want to yell at these kids, we got to squat every Monday. Well, yeah, but unless you ran 10 miles in the pouring rain uphill on Sunday, then maybe squatting Monday is a bad decision, right? So we got to put together some templates and things we think work for almost everybody. We also realize there's got to be some individualization based on your body, your injury history, where you are in your training, your fitness level, and where you are in your calendar year. And by supersets, um, for those who aren't familiar, so you're picking like three exercises and doing one set and then like swapping those exercises and doing like rounds of those. So one yeah. set, one set, one set, swapping over. Exactly. My apologies for not explaining that. But yeah, so say for example, we're going to do a, a push-up, a pull-up, and a sit-up to keep it super easy. You're going to do that for four sets. We'll do one set of push-ups, one set of pull-ups, one set of sit-ups, and rotate through that a couple times, right? Because we find yeah. if you're going to try to lift as heavy as possible, you need recovery time, and you got to kind of sit down, recover, get your body ready to go again. The kind of weights most people in our world are lifting doesn't require that kind of full-body recovery, right? So clearly, we got to get stronger. We got to progress. We got to pick up heavier dumbbells, heavier kettlebells eventually. But if we do a really heavy set on our legs while we're resting, can we get something out of our upper body? Can we activate our core? Can we do a stretch? Can we keep this session moving as much as possible? So we're not just, you know, I, I don't know if, if recovery is quote unquote wasted time, but if your main focus in your athletic pursuits isn't lifting as much weight as possible, you can probably use that time a little better, right? We don't want you to do the heavy set of squats. You can't sit in a plyo box for four minutes, look at our Instagram, and then go back at it again when we're fully recovered for people like us. Fair? Yeah, fair. And like you say, if we can only fit in two, two lots of 45-minute sessions per week, we want those 45-minute sessions to be as productive and as efficient as possible and you know, supersetting with some core and some upper body stuff to give the legs a bit of a rest for the second set is going to be the most efficient way possible. So yeah, definitely agree. We'll move on to Craig's question. He asks for a beginner or intermediate runner, um, what is the best strength training? Well, is it best to do strength training after a run or do it on a separate day within the week? What do you have for Craig? Well, Craig, again, thank you. I think it, it kind of depends on your schedule and your life, right? How many days a week you're running. So, for example, if you're a beginner runner and you're running on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, let's say Monday, Wednesday, Friday, Sunday, you want to get your lifts in on Tuesday, Thursday, and something super light recovery-wise on Saturday, I think that works really good, right? If that's impossible, I would say get your lifts in after your runs 
Um, pretty much as soon after as possible, just kind of making your life work, making it work with your life. You're already warmed up, you're already sweating. Um, so get your running, get your lifting, and then go about with the rest of your day. As far as what's, what's optimal, I think separating them on different days is probably the best way to do it. But again, if you're an intermediate runner and you're running six days a week, that will only give you one day to do your resistance training, right? So some days you got to double up and maybe on those shorter runs, those recovery runs, those might become your run slash lift days. And then your long runs, or your tempo runs, your your really the ones where you're really pushing your pace, you just lift those days and you know foam roll, recover, whatever you're gonna do to get ready for your next run. But that's I think that's just quickly chiming in here to let you scholars know I have just updated my five day injury prevention challenge. This is one email per day for five days, learning new concepts and diving into the science on how you can reduce your risk of injury. The sign-up link is in the show notes, so fill in your details and I'll be waiting for you in email number one tomorrow. When you got to kind of look at your schedule and your body and decide the best way to, to plug those pieces together. Yeah. And one thing I say to my runners when they ask, like, when should I do my strength training? Should I do it, like, is it okay to do it before the run uh, and when throughout the week? The only scenario where I'm quite cautious on is if someone does a strength training session and then goes for a run where the strength training session was quite intense and then they're running quite floppy or like really lazy or they just feel really like less efficient they don't have that spring they're a little bit like their ground contact times a little bit longer and those overall mechanics are just a little bit altered that's when i would you know question whether that's a good structure or restructuring yeah. things would you agree T totally agree with that and i think it might depend a little bit on the time of the year what you need to prioritize and get your best working right so to, to speak to what you just said if i'm six weeks out from a marathon or a triathlon and my endurance work is clearly the focus of my training at this time of the year, right? I personally want to put my week together where my endurance work, I'm hitting it as fresh as I can, best biomechanics as I can. And that's what's really important this time of the year, right? If I'm in my off season, I'm, I'm eight months away from my, my next big race, and I want to get strong, now I might structure my week where my lifts are the most important thing. And if I have some, you know, average to below average endurance session, that's okay for this time of the year, Right. So I think one thing, you know, we play uh, high-level sports, team sports, we periodize the year pretty well, right? I think in the running world, where we're adults, we're kind of training ourselves, we don't do a great job of identifying different times of the year and different training focuses, and different, or not everybody, certain people, don't do a great job defining that. Say, for example, in, in America, if I'm going to run the New York City Marathon in November, in August, September, and October, my runs are the most important things in my life, right? That's going to get me through that finish line, hopefully post a PR, maybe qualify for Boston. In January, February, and March, my focus may be, depending on my body type, my, my competitive level, should be on getting strong, getting injury resistant, and getting the most of those resistance training sessions. So I think kind of we can kind of, kind of steal or borrow, if you will, the way you know our football players, our baseball players, our, our other athletes kind of train and periodize the year a little bit better, and we'll get better over time. Hopefully, have a long career and we kind of learn every year and get better over periodization. Yeah, I like how you do it. I like how you suggest to to individualize certain parts of the session, but then individualize it throughout the year. So you're you're focusing on the individual and what their goals are, but then you're also focusing on what time of the year it is and what you prioritize. Or where your priorities should lie. That's that's a really good insight. Number three, we have Alan. Should I? Well, I've kind of got the combination of the two. We've got Alan who said, "Should I strength train if I have delayed onset muscle soreness or DOMS?" So, should you still be in the gym doing working a particular muscle group if the, you've got DOMS in that muscle group? And two, Joanne asks, "Is it sensible to run when you have DOMS, delayed onset muscle soreness?" So, let's start with Alan. The the strength training side of things. Is it okay to do strength training with DOMS? I'm going to give my opinion. I'd like to hear yours too, because I'm sure you have a stance on this that's pretty interesting. In my opinion, if for people that are new to resistance training, and if you're doing it right, you're going to be sore at some point after doing it, right? You can make it right. And now if you're laid out, can't get out of bed, 
thinking about calling out a work or school type store, you probably did something wrong in the weight room. Is that is that fair to say? But if we experience a little bit of delayed onset muscle soreness day day two or three after a workout, and it's not you're not injuring yourself, the, the cliche we have in the United States, which I think is true, like a lot of cliches, the best recovery from a hard workout is an easy workout, right? So let's say, for example, you did some squats and some RDLs and your quads, glutes, and hamstrings are super banged up on, on the Wednesday after that on a Monday, right? Do we have, should we go in and squat heavy again, RDL heavy again, and crush our lower extremity? Probably not, right? But can we definitely get something out of the gym by going in, doing some mobility work, doing some recovery stuff, and maybe hitting some light body weight goblet type squat movement, right? Maybe do some kind of physio ball leg crawl, lighter hamstring movement, and start flushing that source out of our lower extremity so it doesn't linger and we don't miss time training. So my quick answer would be yes, but be smart about it, right? Get your body, get whatever part of your body sore moving, get stretched out, get loose, get mobile, and do some light resistance training to recover from the heavy resistance training, right? Um, another option, which I don't like nearly as much, but is, is one way to skin this cat is if your legs are super sore on a day you're supposed to lift, you can do an upper body lift. If your upper body is super sore one, you can do a lower body lift. But I do think you're better off in you know, sweeping generalization, getting something out of the body part that's sore, getting those muscles moving, getting those joints moving through a range of motion, getting to make to make energy metabolism super simple, get good stuff and nutrients and oxygen pumped in, get toxins and waste products and bad stuff pumped out by elevating heart rate a little bit, and that'll make you feel better for the next time you have to run or lift whatever's coming up on that next day. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Like when I read this question from Alan, I was like, okay, it's probably a question of intensity. Maybe if you go into the set, the training session, decide, like like you say, be smart about it. What intensity do you really want to go at based on how you're feeling on that day? But you can also change up the exercises slightly so that you're still working that muscle group. It's probably not the primary focus of that muscle group, but DOMS is on a spectrum. Like, like you say, you can have hard to get out of bed in the morning or you could have, you know, just soreness that's okay, but not really hindering too much. So it just depends where you fall on that particular scenario and then make those decisions in the moment. And one thing I will say too, to people that are new to resistance training, and this is even people that are 10, 12 years deep in their endurance or running career that are new to resistance training. It's a different kind of sore that they haven't really experienced before, right? So if you're lifting weights and you're doing something, particularly if you've never trained before, you're if you're doing it right, you're going to feel it the next day or two, right? But I think to some extent, you got to just kind of, I don't want to say fight through because it has some negative connotations, but kind of get to know your body, get to know how far to push yourself without injuring yourself, and then it starts to feel natural. Now it feels like, okay, I did X yesterday, so I feel this way today. I did Y yesterday, so I feel this way. And then once you get in a groove and your body gets stronger, you get a little bit better, put some more weight on the bar, do some more sets of reps, and don't have that same level of soreness you did at week six that you did at week one. Yeah, it's kind of like this introductory phase. And most people can recognize if they do like a gym class and they do a whole bunch of exercises they've never done before and then they have muscle soreness for five days, um, most people can appreciate that scenario. But if you persist through it for you know three weeks or so, that muscle soreness hardly ever like it goes from five days to like one one to two days which is a lot more manageable but if someone is starting new strength exercises and they're feeling a fair bit of like let's say moderate doms but then they have to run the next day is it still okay to run with doms i i personally think it is like we're talking about light light delay on some muscle soreness absolutely i think most of the time getting some level of running will start to make you feel better and call kind of agree on that now the beginning of it's gonna be rough that first mile or two you're not going to like what you're doing uh, at the end of the workout and the next day. If you take care of yourself in all other respects, what I mean that, I mean, get plenty of sleep, drink plenty of water, eat the right foods, and get that recovery process rolling. You're going to feel better the day after that. If you go lift, run, and so we're talking about day three here, you're going to feel better after you get yourself through all that stuff, right? Um, but I think the key is, and it, again, it's a little bit, it's kind of a non-answer, but it's, you got to be intelligently persistent, right? You got to keep pushing yourself with an eye towards my body feels this way because I did this other thing I don't normally do and decided when it's time to push and when it's time to pull back a little bit. Yeah, yeah, totally agree. And there's always a case of like how you can strength train at different intensities. You can run at different intensities as well and make that decision in the moment. And if you have moderate DOMS and like you say, the first mile will be a struggle, just do really low intensity. It doesn't have to be, it could just be treating it like a warm up, and most people will appreciate 
after a warm up of running for five to 10 minutes, most of that you can hardly notice anymore. And I, I would think that if you do, if you have severe DOMS and it's affecting your biomechanics, it's affecting your stride and you sort of moving and positioning yourself a bit differently, I'd say that's probably cause for concern, but that's rare in terms of DOMS being that severe that it actually caused that, especially if you've persisted beyond that introductory phase. Would you agree? I totally agree. And one advice I would give to people that might be new to integrating resistance training into their endurance training, right? Be conservative when you start. Don't start stacking 45s on a bar and doing five sets of 12. That's probably not going to work out for you. Agreed? Um, Start maybe your first set's just a bar. Get it right. Learn what to do. Maybe put a five on, put a 10 on. Start with things you know you can do and then start making progress, right? But realize, particularly if you're an adult, kids, you know, younger people bounce back a little quicker. But if you've only been a runner for 20 years and all of a sudden you want to start lifting weights, it's a hard thing for your body to accomplish, right? So start conservative, start less weights, less sets, less reps. Feel good about what you're doing. Get your body used to it. And then maybe when you're a month in, six weeks in, start adding some sets, adding some reps, throwing some extra weight on the bar, picking up some heavier dumbbells or kettlebells. But just realize, lifting weight, I've been lifting weights for 30 years. It's hard. If you're doing it right, it's hard. Be smart about introducing it to your body and be smart about when you introduce it throughout your training calendar. Yeah. I remember uh, it's probably about four years ago, I, I started CrossFit and I'd never picked up a barbell in my life. And the squats, deadlifts, even just like, I didn't realize the amount of mobility that you need. And I know you talk about in the book, the, the importance of mobility. And even on this podcast, you've even mentioned it already, but the an overhead press or like a squat or a deadlift or a lunge, like I just, it, it surprised me how much I needed to work on mobility first. And I was, like you said, super light, just focusing on empty bar, good form, good technique, good mobility, good range of movement, that sort of stuff for, I reckon, two or three months before I even started applying those um, the weights, but didn't get injured, which was good because I took that sensible right. approach, but you know, people might not be as conservative or I know I really want to take it really careful. So that's probably a bit more on the conservative side, but, um, it goes to show like you do something new, you move your body in different directions and then you apply weight. There is some risks if you haven't had experience with that. So yeah, start on the conservative side. I would agree. Yeah. I, I always say it's kind of a joke, but it's kind of real. It's so unfair how specific our body develops develops fitness levels, right? You might be a world-class marathoner. Your first time in the gym lifting weights, you're going to be sore. It just doesn't matter, right? It's just a different, mm. different thing you're doing. Uh, I always tell a story. In 2018, I ran a marathon. I had one of the best times of my career on a Sunday. I took Monday and Tuesday off. And on Wednesday, I, decided, I would start swimming. I would start doing some laps in the Olympic pool that I had access to. And like two laps put me under. I was done. I was ready to quit. And I was in the best cardiovascular shape I was going to be that whole year. But that swimming was so different than that running. It, 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 it surprised me. I was like, oh, wait, because fitness is specific. And it doesn't matter how many miles I ran. The pool is different. Um, kind of like the weight room is different. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. Um, we've got Melody who asks, high reps, low weight or low weight, high reps like she hears both camps, uh, particularly for runners who are running beyond a half marathon distance. So we're talking half marathons, marathons, ultras, those like really right. long distances. What should Melody and the rest of the runners in that camp kind of uh, lean towards? I, I think for the most part, we want to stay on the moderate to high side of the spectrum reps wise, right? So about eight to 12 reps for, for those guys and girls is going to be where they want to be pretty much across the board. Okay. Um, when we're, we're in our off-season and we're trying to build in that base, that, that strength base, and trying to increase our work capacity, maybe 12-plus, 12-15 reps might kind of work. Um, as you get kind of go through our year and get a little closer to our big races, want to get a little bit stronger, maybe 8-10 to 10 reps, something like that. I don't think there's a lot of reason to go be up below that 6-8 that to rep, six to eight rep range for almost any reason for any kind of serious endurance athlete. Uh, I think in, in that case, your body's kind of, you're kind of setting yourself up to get injured by putting enough weight on the bar you can only do it two or three times. So I think in general, moderate to higher rep ranges, right, with a pretty moderate approach to weight. And I always say there's a million ways you can calculate intensity in a weight room. I think the easiest thing to say is if you're doing eight reps, reps six, seven, and eight should be difficult, right? If you're blowing through eight reps and it feels like you could do 10 more, it's way too easy to get anything out of it. 
If you need someone to, to spot you and rep seven and eight are crushing you, right? That's way too heavy for people in our category. So I think you should be able to get all your reps and the last three or four reps are pretty challenging. And when that gets easy, you move up to the next next weight on the, on the machine, a kettlebell, whatever it might be, put another five pound plate on the bar. But in general, it's kind of, a, kind of an easy answer, but I think it's true. Moderate to higher rep range, moderate to, to maybe slightly lower intensity range depending on the time of the year. Yeah. I know you say moderate to high rep range around the eight to twelves, but a lot of runners would consider that quite low. Like a lot of runners are in the gym doing 20 plus reps of body weight or just a little bit of weight. And so it's good that you highlight that the, the final reps of, you know, an eight to 12 rep should be quite challenging because for some just reframing that whole scenario, it's actually quite heavy for a lot of people. Yeah, no, that's true. And I, one thing I kind of, I kind of answer that in my head, I went with my head, the actual weightlifting exercises, right? Your bench presses, your squats, your RDLs. With body weight stuff, I think it could definitely go way higher, right? Um, there's people at 12 push-ups is an absolute joke for them. They'll get nothing out of it. And those people, I would say, maybe put a weighted vest on, find a way to add some resistance, or increase your reps enough that you're going to be able to get something out of it with the, the body weight stuff. So I kind of, I didn't, my mind didn't go there for some reason, but definitely <laughs> Well, I'm always on the camp um, that runners should be lifting heavier just because they do find themselves in the gym. When they, when they eventually get to the gym, they do what they're really good at and they're good at doing bodyweight exercises for 20 to 30 reps. And that's what they stick to because they know that, you know, you kind of just gravitate to what you're good at essentially. Yeah. But um, I know there's a ton of evidence to show that heavier stuff and then sometimes if you even if you want to do a bit more explosive stuff, um, that has really good carryover for running economy um, and can help really with running performance, even if it's marathon distances. And so I do encourage runners to go heavier once it's safe for them to do so, once they've got the practice and uh, the mobility and that sort of stuff, and it's safe to progress those weights, um, which takes me to Jen's question. Jen uh, ties in really well with this, asks, um, how should an exercise be progressed when it comes to weights, reps? Is there a certain structure if we say are doing squats and 12 is starting to get a bit too easy. Um, is there a particular formula for people just to go week by week or, you know, session by session, how they should be progressing? I mean, I, I think one way to keep it super simple as far as progress goes, maybe if you're, say, it's, you know, month one of your strength training, you might do three or four sets of 12. Month two, three or four sets to 10. Uh, month three, maybe drop it down to sets of eight. And then if you get to that fourth month, maybe some sets of six to eight reps, trying to put some weight on the bar and, and get, you know, technically stronger, right? Once you build that base and our work capacity is pretty good and we've got some hypertrophy and some muscle on our bones, we can do that pretty simply. Um, or the, if you're a little bit higher level than that and you have your kind of year periodized, we kind of, kind of preach the gospel of doing your off season and when you're not running as much, now's the time to maybe drop the reps a little bit, put some heavier weights up and get stronger, right? As we go through our, our building a base period, we're actually you know build, uh, running more and more miles week to week. Now we might do some higher rep range stuff because our, we're kind of too sore and too beat up from our, our stuff on the road to really crush it in the gym. And then as we get to our um, peak and taper phases, we're kind of, well, let's go peak first, our peak mileage phase, we're going some higher rep ranges so we can kind of be recovered and be ready to go every time and use, use muscles for our runs. And then we get to taper, we normally say if we taper our, our uh, mileage by 20%, for example, let's taper the gym by 20% too. So if we're doing sets of 10, drop it down to sets of eight, within a hundred pounds, drop it down to 80 pounds, and just kind of keep that same principle of how you're tapering on the road, how you're tapering in the gym, right? So it always feels like a reverse periodization for some sports, where in general, you want to start lifting super light weights for high reps and cycle that down to lifting real heavy weights for lower reps. Um, you want to kind of do the inverse of that a lot of times, because that's going to be more analogous to what you're doing with your running training and not affect your running training as much, right? Because let's keep it real. We're going to be having super long runs back-to-back -back with super intense lifting sessions because um, eventually somewhere in that system is going to break down, in my opinion. And in the scenario where we have a recreational runner who likes a marathon, maybe one marathon per year, but for the most part is just like getting through most of the year, just enjoying running, you know, four to five times a week. When they're in the gym and they want to get progress their squats, um, would you stick to like what you suggested at the start? Maybe do one month, three sets of 12, maybe the next month increase the weight slightly and do reps of 10, 
next month increase the weight slightly go to eight do you just follow that particular progression yeah, yeah i i think yeah i think that kind of very basic periodization kind of works for recreational runners uh much like it does are probably higher level runners to some extent the other thing i would say for the recreate for really anywhere in this category we can progress sets and reps right we also progress our exercise selection right so maybe we're doing if we got really good at back squats and we feel good about it maybe it's time now to try some front squats try some overhead squats Try some different squats with a pause at the bottom, work on our explosiveness a little bit. There's a bunch of ways you can prog- progress and regress exercises, which are valuable too, because we're just going to keep adding sets and reps to increase our, our intensity. Eventually, how many, how long can you be in the gym, right? So eventually, let's try to try some, do some different exercises to get great at the, at the foundation exercises. And then once you're good at that, keep learning new stuff so you can put that in your toolbox and pull it out when you want to and make stuff harder or easier based on sets, reps, and exercise progression. Hmm. And I understand with a lot of these questions, there's going to be like 10 different ways you can answer them just based on individual circumstances. But yeah, I really like that, that answer. Um, how about James? He asks, what are the must-do core exercises for runners? And are there any tests you can do to assess or check if the, the core is under a good condition. I know you have some um, good core chapters in your book as well. So what do you have for James? Uh, first of all, thanks, James. I appreciate it. Uh, second of all, I think you want to hit the core for the runner almost the same way you do for any athletic population, right? So let's do some some of the regular core stuff we all know works for the front of our body, our V-ups, our sit-ups, our crunches, our leg raises, all that's pretty good. As long as you're doing with good technique and, and you know flying out your spine, doing things the right way, I think those old school core exercises are all great, right? Secondary, let's hit some oblique work, right? Let's do some rotational stuff, whether it's a med ball throw, a side to side crunch, an alternating V up or X up, depending on what you call it. And that stuff's super valuable. And then let's hit our lower back somewhere along the line, right? Supermans, Aquamans, reverse hypers, hyper extensions are all great. And the one thing I think you want to put an asterisk next to for runners and pretty much all endurance sport people is let's work on some kind of anti-rotation exercise, right? So whether or not we do a plate drag in a push-up position, a shoulder tap in a push-up position, uh, any ways you can really resist rotation while we're in a plank position or standing position, I think is super valuable. The idea being that if our upper body rotates too much while we're running, even if it's only less than an eighth of an inch, but we lose that economy of movement every step for 26 plus miles, that's a ton of wasted energy, right? So can we do things to keep our upper body a little more stable and then and not rotate when we don't want it to? So I think we have a whole chapter in the book on anti-rotation exercises. I'm sure there's a ton of information online about it from other sources. But I think that's the one place where runners might want to dedicate a little extra time compared to the other two that maybe other kind of athletes don't have to worry about nearly as much. So anti-rotation exercises are the ones where... so. Uh, resistance is being applied to rotate you, but you're trying to resist that force and trying to remain stable. Exactly right. So an example, a popular one, uh, the payoff press, where the, there was a, a resistance band attached to a wall or a squat rack or something, and you kind of position yourself where the band is pulling you towards where it's anchored, and you're working to keep your body from rotating in that direction, right? Um, that's a standing one that's fairly easy, depending on what size resistance band you pick. Um, another one we get a little more advanced, anything in a push-up position, we're moving one arm or one leg, trying not to rotate our upper body and keep our body flat like a table. It's kind of the, the, the cue people kind of respond to the most. But if, you know, if you're in a push-up position and you raise one hand off the ground, your body's natural inclination is to shift all of your weight towards the hand that's stable on the ground, right? So we kind of resist that inclination and keep our body in a good position while we're raising the hand up, doing a shoulder tap, doing a toe tap, whatever it might be. Um, we kind of find that a good way to work those anti-rotation muscles. And a lot of cases, the anti-rotation isn't only muscular, it's also coordinating your central nervous system to not automatically go to the easy option, which is shift all the weight to the stable side of your body, but work on stabilizing and balanced and proprioception on both sides of your body when one side is being disrupted for some reason, which would happen yeah. when we run a lot. Yeah. And I think if someone... Like just to run us now, if they just want to search a Paloff press and just have a look at what that looks like and then maybe apply that. Um, I'm going to get back to James's second part of the question about if there are any core exercise or core tests just to check. But before we go into that, Rachel asks, how often should anti-rotation exercises be applied? So good to dive into this one before going sure. back to James. 
Another good one from Rachel. Um, I think twice a week is, is, is a good starting point for these anti-rotation exercises. And I would say if you're doing ab or core work any other times beyond that, like let's say maybe after your runs you do some core before you're going to the house or whatever, try to add one anti-rotation exercise every time you train your core. I think it's pretty good because one thing you find out, these exercises, you don't have to do a thousand reps. It could be five, seven, ten reps, something like that for each side. Um, and they're not, once you get good at them, they're not super taxing, right? So it's not the kind of thing that's really going to make you sore and beat up the next day, but it's the kind of thing, the cumulative effect of doing these movements a couple times a week over the course of a year should improve your running economy at least a little bit. So I think work them in minimum two times a week, maybe max four, but just, you know, probably if you've been training doing core for a long time, probably tired of your regular core routine, check out some anti-rotation stuff and throw that in the mix. Um, would be something new that will you might be missing in your workouts right now. Mm. And some tests if someone can do maybe just at home or at the gym to to see if they might be lacking in. I mean, I, I'd like to hear your your advice on this. I think the idea of holding just a basic plank for about a minute is a good kind of baseline for someone that's doing some running, right? If they have any pre-existing injuries, stopping them from doing that. Beyond that, I think the easiest kind of self-test you could do is is two. Number one. Pick some core exercises you like and try to do maybe every other Friday or something. You kind of do a self-check of how many good reps you can do. And that should be going up from week to week, right? The other thing is if you have access to a camera and someone to help you, get a look at your running technique. See how it looks. Does your, is your torso upright? Does your chest expand the way you want it to? Does it look and feel pretty good? If not, core the core might be what's breaking down and causing that collapsing in biomechanics that you're seeing that you don't want to see, right? Um, I kind of say, see how your runs are going, and if they're going good, um, your core's in pretty good shape, keep doing what you're doing. If they're not, it might be trying to, time to change something up. Mm. I haven't seen it too often, but uh, I've been told that people who run and their arm swing is a bit wide, like their elbows are too wide, um, that might be someone who's struggling with balance, like to, to run, they're trying to widen, they're, they're trying to get a, a wider base of support or you know, just a wider sort of momentum just to keep balanced. And that might be something to do with their core or coordination or habit or something, but um, maybe that's something that might pop up in their running technique. Um, in terms of tests, yeah, I think maybe a front plank for 60 to 90 seconds, you could you could probably find out that your general average based on your, your age and gender. Um, side planks are usually a little bit longer, about 90 seconds, I believe. But there was a research paper that was released this year about um, they got a whole bunch of runners and got them to do plank times and try to correlate that with injuries. And they couldn't really find anything. They said that like the, the ones who had, um, I think that there was a bit of a ceiling effect in that one as well, because the max that they did was two minutes. And I think a lot of them got to two minutes. And so the results were a bit skewed that way, um, a bit of a limitation to the study, but they couldn't find any uh, injury prevention or injury kind of um, prone athletes based on plank times. But I do think that if I had an athlete come in here and they had a, a couple of issues and then you get them to do a plank and they're really struggling at like 30 seconds to 45 seconds, it definitely have to be something that you address because there's a, a clear, you know, compromised sort of strength thing there. And yeah, I do yeah, think that's warranted. I, I agree. I think we're, we're, I think we're, if you're going to do a plank for four minutes versus three minutes, you might not really see a good correlation, right? But to someone that could do a plank for 30 seconds versus three minutes, there's probably a real difference in how that person moves. I think we'd agree on that, right? The other thing I think, and I, I do, because I, I train a lot of large groups in my, in my job at Seton Hall. So like baseball teams, 40 guys. The soccer teams with 30 men and women. Um, so we don't, we don't have enough time or resources to do a lot of movement screens before activity, right? But what I always do is during a dynamic warm-up, I can eyeball test people. And normally, I'm not perfect, but I'm pretty good at it at this point in my career pick out what their weaknesses are, right? So if we're doing bodyweight squats and they can't they can't keep their chest upright, sink their hips back, and stand up nice and tall out of it, a lot of times that's going to be a core weakness of some kind, right? That's the same thing. If we can't do a lunge without leaning way over our front knee because our core is breaking down, we could tell that guy or girl has a weak core and then we have to address that in some capacity, right? So I think a lot of times from coaches and physiotherapists and PTs, if we look at our dynamic warm-up, and kind of make either physical notes or mental notes of how these kids or these athletes are moving during these very basic motor patterns, you can see right away where their weaknesses are. And hopefully, if you're doing it right, start to address them in their training, right? So a lot of times on those squats, on those lunges, even on an RDL, 
those the, the, the core weakness might be what's causing the movement breakdown and just getting stronger core muscles and better control of your core muscles might make you much better at those main exercises. Yeah, well said. Uh, I have Zoe asking her a question. Any key exercises to help with uphill running? Um, you know, it's, it's usually a struggle, particularly for trail and ultra runners. Do you have any advice for Zoe? I mean, I think getting really good at the, the basic leg exercise, right? Becoming a decent squatter, becoming a decent Romanian deadlifter is a good place to start, right? And then once you kind of develop that base strength and you're good doing stuff by, uh, with both legs, let's work on some single leg movements, right? Can we work on some step-ups? Can we work on some lunges, even some reverse lunges? Uh, single leg Romanian deadlifts with a dumbbell kind of going across your body. Kettlebell swings, I think, are a good posterior chain movement. But I think just kind of getting that lower extremity strong with the basics first and then some isolateral single leg stuff secondarily is a great place to start that. And then at that point, you know, hopefully you're, you're a little bit stronger and that transfers to out on the, on the hills you're running. Yeah, agreed. Like a lot of, one of the major benefits, like I, I have um, Richard Blagrove's book um, behind me and he talks about the benefits of strength training when it comes to endurance runners and, one of the major takeaways is strength training is helps build up force production. Like you can produce force better and more efficiently and the tendon stiffness and all that sort of, um, you know, the ability to propel is just enhanced. And that's exactly what it's like for uphill running. You're fighting gravity and you're fighting that terrain and you need to produce more force in in a more efficient way possible. And I know I mentioned before a couple of years ago, I started CrossFit in the year I was doing CrossFit, I was doing trail events and I like running uphill was when I was passing the most people. And I, I noticed a significant difference and that's, that was pretty much just keeping to the same basic squats, deadlifts, calf raises. Like we know, um, your calf is probably, well, it is by far the biggest propulsion muscle that we have with our body. And so just getting really strong with those muscle groups doesn't have to be complicated, does it? But, um, no, not really? to, I will say this, man. If anybody listening, if you're a little skeptical about how important resistance training is to endurance training and competing, a hill is where you feel it right away, right? Mm-hmm. Everything else we talked about before was kind of abstract and very long-term. If we get stronger, we ward off injury, we don't have as much overuse stuff. All of that's results we see months down the road, right? Getting stronger before you run a hill, you can see or feel that right away, Right. Um, and it might be the first place you see it. And if you look at something like a, like a step up, a box step up, that almost looks like running up a hill. It's probably the most sports specific thing you could do as far as if you put those pictures side to side. I mean, it's not dead on, but it's pretty close compared to everything else being a little more harder to harder to visualize how it works. That one's pretty close, I think. I'd agree. Yeah, definitely. And lastly, we have Craig. Craig's second question um, asks, when preparing for a marathon, uh, what should the taper look like in terms of strength? I know you kind of touched on a little bit earlier on, but uh, maybe just uh, hone in on that more specifically. Uh, sure. What we see over in the United States, and I think this is where even good coaches kind of drop the ball a little bit, right? When it's time to taper, they cut resistance training out completely, right? And I think personally, I think if you were doing something that made you feel good, made you stronger, made you better on the hills like we just talked about, Cutting that out for three or four weeks before a big event, to me personally, doesn't make any sense. What I think we should do is get in the gym the exact same number of times we were doing throughout the whole training cycle, right? Um, exact same days, keep it as uniform as we can. And whatever taper you decide works for you on the runs, make that taper work in the gym as well. So, for example, if we're going to taper 20% of our mileage off and run 80% of what we normally run during the taper, Let's just do the exact same thing in the weight room. So cut out 20% of what you're doing in the gym, do 80% of it, and if that gives you some extra time every day in the gym, use that time for whatever makes you feel good, right? If that's going to be uh, any kind of recovery stuff, any kind of mobility work, any kind of the kind of joint mobilizations, whatever it might be, but still do your squats, do your RDLs, do your lunges, do 80% of what you normally do. Uh, maybe based on personal preference, the week of the event, maybe cut it down to one day early in the week and just you know show up at that starting line super ready and recovered. Uh, but in general, I think for your taper, keep it pretty similar to what you're doing. Keep the taper uniform from mileage to weight room. And then uh, at the very end, make your personal preference and show up ready to go. Yeah. I'm curious to hear your opinion on this. Like I always mention 
particularly when it comes to strength, like strength is hard to gain, but easy to maintain. Uh, and I have the, you know, if you want to build up your squat, how heavy you can squat, it takes a long time to build up that strength. But once you've sort of reached kind of the peak and it kind of gets to maybe marathon time, backing off that, even if it's just backing off the weights or backing off the frequency, maybe the ability, as long as you're consistent with like keeping a, a reduced volume, it's still really easy to maintain that strength. Um, and cause a lot of people fear that if they stop it, they're going to lose it straight away. Um, or if they back it off or dial it down, they're going to lose it. Um, do you have that same particular philosophy? I haven't spent so much time in a strength and conditioning gym, but is it, are the principles kind of similar? Yeah, yes, I 100% agree. I think, you know, our body doesn't detrain super quick, but like you addressed in a recent episode, we do lose fitness if we don't train. It happens across the board. Anybody want to measure fitness? Um, and it, I think the worst thing you can do is go an extended period of time without resistance training, okay? Because um, in general, what's going to happen is your, your muscles are going to get weaker physiologically. Your central nervous system is going to get worse at those motor patterns. And when you do, hopefully you do go back at some point, but now you have to relearn how to do the movements, how to fire your mu- how to fire your muscles in a proper sequence to make a squat happen, to make a pull up happen, to make a push up happen, right? That's why if you deal with untrained people haven't maybe been physical since they were teenagers, then in their forties and fifties, it's literally like working with a toddler of how their body works, right? They're so out of out of the, the loop of how their body should be working, their central nervous system is failing them and they can't do a, a hinge or a lunge or a step up the way a trained person can at the same age, right? Um, so then the biggest thing is to keep doing the, the, the motor patterns that you're going to do and that you deem important to, for yourself and your training and just uh, manipulate exercise selection, sets, reps, intensity, volume to where you never go a very long period of time without doing a movement, right? A um, couple asterisks in there. If it's an injury where you can't do it, Maybe that's something you got to find some alternate ways to get around. But just because you're, you're doing endurance sports at a high volume, in my opinion, doesn't mean you should cut out any of the movements you think are important. Just alter the way you do them so you can still be good at both. Hmm. Angelo, your book is finished strong. Uh, we've kind of gave a couple of hints and teasers about what the book actually contains. Um, anything else about you know where we can buy it, what runners will learn, uh, what they should know before buying? Sure. So it's resistance training, uh, finish strong, resistance training for endurance athletes. It's on Amazon. It's in Barnes and Noble. It's in you know some running specialty stores all over the world. We got some really good feedback so far. It came out at the very end of 2021. And the idea is just for runners, swimmers, cyclists, and triathletes that are already training, we want to help put the last piece of the puzzle together to keep you strong, healthy, and, and hopefully running PRs well and well beyond middle age, right? So as me and Dr. R.J. Borgers, we decided that putting these workouts together and did the research for why endurance athletes should strength train. And if you're a fan of the Run Smarter podcast, you already know why. We, we talk, we, Brody talks about it all the time on the show. does a great job of it. Um, we just want to give you some ideas training-wise how to put some workouts together. You know, I said earlier in the show, but I, I say it everywhere, and I'm in this category myself. Endurance athletes, in general, have too little time and too much fatigue. But let's find an extra 80, 90 minutes a week get in the gym, extend our career, and keep putting up good numbers and good good times as we get older. And and oh, and one thing I want to say real quick, particularly at the, at the high school and college level in the United States, but even on the, the even the pro level of running, we see people get to the end of a marathon, end of a triathlon, and they're just done. It's over. They're they're physically, mentally, emotionally exhausted, right? And that makes a great movie. Somebody dragging themselves across the finish line and able to stand up. That's a great movie, great Nike commercial, great highlight film, right? But in reality, that person's laid out for the next couple of days not being productive, not feeling great. Can we put some resistance training in our workouts, finish that race, having a great time, feeling good about ourselves, standing tall, ready to train again, and, you know, party, celebrate that marathon finish, and then go get ready to sign up for the next one. And I think for a lot of people, resistance training or lack of resistance training is the missing piece of that puzzle. And I think, you know, hopefully you do it by the, by the principles of our book, by, by, by what Brady does, what Brody does, and any of his guests have talked about in the show before, find a way to do it, keep getting stronger, and stay healthy throughout your life and your running career. Good way to finish up, mate. Well, um, I'll put out a link on Amazon on in our show notes to your book. Um, while I'm there, is there any other social media links or any other websites or anything you want me to include? 
Yeah, the, the biggest way to follow what we're doing with the book and see some of the information there is our Instagram account. It's at finish underscore strong underscore book. So again, at finish underscore strong underscore book. And then my personal email is angelo.gingerelli at gmail.com. Uh, if you want any clarification on what we talked about today or some have some individual questions that might only apply to you, feel free to reach out at angelo.gingerelli at gmail.com. I'll get back to you as soon as I can. I appreciate that, mate. You might get a couple of questions coming your way and um, a bit more of an extra detail. So thanks for handing out that information and definitely include that in the show notes. This has been great, mate. We've covered a, a whole bunch and I'm really excited to, I've, I've gone through your book kind of um, speed reading it to prepare for this, but I can't wait to go back and start reading it in a bit more detail. And um, yeah, thanks for your hard work of publishing the book and the hard work you're doing with athletes. And thanks for coming on. Great, man. Thanks so much. And that concludes another Run Smarter lesson. I hope you walk away from this episode feeling empowered and proud to be a Run Smarter scholar. Because when I think of runners like you who are listening, I think of runners who recognize the power of knowledge, who don't just learn but implement these lessons, who are done with repeating the same injury cycle over and over again, who want to take an educated, active role in their rehab, who are looking for evidence-based long-term solutions and will not accept problematic quick fixes. And last but not least, who serve a cause bigger than themselves and pass on the right information to other runners who need it. I look forward to bringing you another episode and helping you on your Run Smarter path.